Okay, so chances are, if you've been on LinkedIn recently, someone you know has liked something, or maybe it's you, that our next guest has written, because her posts are just that good. But it wasn't just her LinkedIn activism that made us want to sit down with her today. It was some impactful articles that she wrote, including one for Cosmopolitan in 2019, and one for the Harvard Business Review last year in 2021, that really made us excited to talk about something that we haven't touched on you know, for all intents and purposes on this podcast to date, which is colorism. So if you're sitting there and asking yourself, what is colorism or what does that have to do with race, systemic racism and how we look at people? And well, then advertising and marketing, as we've known it to always exist in the United States, has largely been doing its job. But that doesn't mean it's the right job. In fact, today we're going to talk all about why it's so important for all of us to understand that colorism is a fundamental piece of our systems that affect us all, like racism, and also the very personal impact that colorism can have on people. We're here to learn in 2022 and to keep asking those questions that make us think deeper and challenge what we've always been told. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Hi, everyone. I'm Mita Malik. I'm zooming in or filming from Jersey City, New Jersey. And I am a passionate storyteller focused on multicultural marketing. I'm a DEI executive and most importantly, I'm a working mother. I love all of that. And I love your activism on LinkedIn. You've done incredibly deep, advanced work with the organization you're with now, with Carta. I know we can talk about a lot of different things regarding DEI. But in particular, I was struck by the articles you've written over the years about colorism. Yes. And it's something that we have not got into very much on the podcast yet. And I'm so psyched that we waited so that we could have this conversation with you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. To level set for our audience, would you mind starting by maybe explaining what colorism is and how that might be different than racism? That's a great question. Colorism is a product of racism. So colorism wouldn't, I would argue, exist without racism. Racism is about institutional beliefs and systems that oppress people of color. And colorism is the preference for lighter skinned individuals. It's the, you know, underpinning of sort of holding up Eurocentric standards of beauty. And colorism, as I was doing my research for my Harvard Business Review piece entitled Marketing Still Has a Problem with Colorism, I believe it was Alice Walker in one of her book of essays where she actually first terms or coins the word colorism. And so the history of that word is also interesting as well. Yeah, I think that that is so true. I think in that article, you said it was the prejudicial or preferential treatment of same race people based solely on their color. And so it would be the idea of like lighter skinned black people, for example, versus darker skinned black people. And if people are listening and thinking about the vision of who they see in their lives, it's that idea that people in society tend to place higher value on the lighter skinned individuals versus darker skinned. How has colorism affected you personally? It's affected me my entire life. I am the proud daughter of Indian immigrant parents. Colorism, as Alice Walker talks about, runs deep within the Black community, is from what I understand. And also in all over the world. And for me, it's uh, in the Indian community. And so I grew up very early on knowing I was smart, but not pretty because I was dark skinned. 
And that's just how I grew up and what I knew. It wasn't necessarily anything my parents said to me. It was more the broader community, especially, I think, growing up you know, on the fringes of Bollywood culture because I was raised in the U.S., and this preference for, you know, cafe au lait, cream colored girls, light brown, <laughs> caramel, you know, all the colors except for brown or dark skin brown. And I think you can see that as for many individuals in the Indian community or, you know, first generation that I've talked to, that is something that is still very prevalent. And that's, it took me a long time to write the essay that I wrote for Cosmopolitan magazine, which was entitled, What Would My Life Be Like If I Wasn't So Dark? And it has shown up to me in many ways. I remember in high school, a white boy that I had a fleeting crush on said to me, you're really pretty for a dark-skinned girl. And you're the first dark-skinned girl that I've ever met who's pretty. And so at the age of 17, you're like, I think that's a compliment, but I kind of feel queasy. Like, I don't know what that is, but you're like, huh. And that crush went away pretty quickly. I remember my husband, who's a first generation Indian American as well, is much lighter skinned than me and often gets mistaken for being European or Egyptian. And people were sort of floored when we were married, family members, sort of like, he's marrying you? Like very interesting undertones of that. And it's shown up at work. I have a very vivid memory. A few years ago, a former boss who was a white man was talking about how he was going to be summering in the Jersey Shore. And he really quickly pulled over a light-skinned Indian woman who was a colleague and stuck his arm in between us, like pulled all of our arms out and said, I'm going to get a tan this summer. We're going to have a have to have a contest, but I don't want to get as dark as Mita, not as dark as Mita right? And you're like, what? Is anyone else watching this? I think it's just really embedded in so many things we do, whether it's at work or outside of work. And I think it's just so deep seated, we don't even notice it. Thank you for sharing those. Because to your point, how deep that goes and how pervasive it has been throughout your life, throughout cultures. And my college roommate is also first generation Indian American. And we would have these discussions about her mother saying like, well, I don't want you out in the sun at all, because if you get any darker, no one's going to marry you kind of thing. And so to hear you tell those stories, right, it brings back all of that. And I think when we think about it in the context of the United States, and in particular, the history of black people and how colorism has played a part there, you know, I think about the paper bag test or in the past in the United States, or, you know, how lighter skinned slaves were seen as better than darker skinned slaves. Like, and my husband who's black and I've had this discussion like about 1 million times about sort of the disparity between the slaves who were able to work in the houses versus the slaves who were out in the fields because of color. And so I would love to hear you talk a little bit about this as well, because I know that we just talked about how it shows up in, in Indian culture, but I think that people are surprised at just how deep that runs here. It is. And I think you actually said it beautifully. It's tied to the institution of slavery, which still has modern day repercussions in our country. And it is this, the proximity to whiteness is how I can describe it. So exactly as you said, enslavers who would force lighter skinned individuals to be working, black individuals, let's be specific, to be working in the home versus who were forced to work in the fields. And that is the paper bag test. I'm not a historian, but understanding sort of the paper bag test and like, are you the color of the paper bag or lighter? 
And so that idea of colorism shows up today still. And so it's very deep seated and it's very painful. It is very painful, as you say, the comments about don't go out in the sun, don't go out into the beach. For years, I wasn't a beach person for that reason, which people didn't really understand, but I did not want to get darker. And then if you think about just, you know, within the US context, which actually has a ripple effect globally, is this push for lightning, brightening, whitening, radiant, like all these like euphemisms, it's all the same thing, trying to get lighter, (laughs) trying to push products that will make me less brown, make me that light, light brown color, whatever that is. And so it's all coded language, right? Again, tied back to getting as close as I can proximity to whiteness. I had several thoughts and questions I'd love to talk out with you both, but one thought I had was, does this affect men as much as it affects women? The second thought I had about this proximity to whiteness was this idea that so many people of Asian descent who live in America are talked, especially if they are, say, you know, Northeast Asian. I've talked to Asian people who are like, oh, I don't really consider myself Asian. I just hang out with white people all the time. And does that have to do with the fact that a lot of times people of Chinese, Korean and Japanese descent tend to be lighter skinned than people perhaps of South Asian descent? And then, oh my gosh, can we talk about these freaking whitening creams? My mom just ordered me a line of like this. It's called the whitening line. There you go. Yeah. Of like face wash and lotion and all of that stuff. And in Japanese culture, that's huge. It is huge. All my aunts every summer would try and get me all of that. Right. So so I want to talk about that living within the Asian culture itself before we come in to talk about sort of American culture. It's a huge market. It's billions and billions of dollars in Asia alone. I mean, it has global ramifications. So we talk about Black Lives Matter, you know, here and globally. And then yet there's this desire of this proximity to whiteness. So it's interesting, especially as companies have been, you know, really showing up or saying they're showing up, let's say Black Lives Matter, we're an ally for the Black community. And then they're selling lightning products and whitening products. You're like, how do those two things coexist, right? And so there's been a reckoning because many of these companies have rebranded or renamed products, I would say renamed. (laughs) I don't know. I'm not a scientist, so I'd have to, I'm not an R&D specialist. I'd have to call a friend to see how those ingredients have changed. But to your question about the difference between men and women, and I can only speak to this from my cultural viewpoint. And again, my viewpoint, I'm not stereotyping for all Indians, but I do know in my own family where arranged marriage has played a big part, women who are lighter skinned are at an advantage when it comes to getting married. And it's often talked about right? You know, so-and-so is too dark, right? To be getting great marriage proposals. Oh, this person's so fair and so light. And so, you know, it is just so associated with how we will sometimes characterize or sometimes how we actually identify individuals. So I have seen that played out personally, which is devastating. This is the issue. It's a huge industry. There's a lot of money to be had. So the question is, who's going to stand up and say, forget the money, I'm actually going to do the right thing because this is really deep-seated. I once had a executive say to me, I worked at Unilever for many years, and we had a product called Fair and Lovely, which was rebranded to, uh, I believe, Glow and Lovely. But when people would ask, why do you sell this product? And I had just joined the company. I remember this. And the explanation from this uh, white executive was, well, you know, I can tan. So I choose to tan 
And so that's the choice. So people can choose to lighten their skin. But I think what you miss then is the global cultural context, which most people are sitting in countries where you were either the colonizer or you were colonized or conquered, right? And so you go back to the roots of that and who was it that played those roles? And it all goes back to the proximity to whiteness. And so I think even to make that statement comes from a real place of privilege. Like you don't understand (laughs) by making that statement. It is not the same, I would say. That analogy should not exist. Mm -hmm. Speaking of what you just mentioned about products and being in business, how does colorism show up in business and why does it matter for business? Well, because you're leaving out an entire segment of the population who is dark skinned, who wants products. I am always looking for products that'll serve my needs. I am looking for products that serve darker skin tones. I know it'll serve me. And so I remember very clearly, very early on in my career, working with a creative director and found a beautiful hero shot of a Black woman for a global campaign we were working on in beauty. And the person was like, this person's too dark skinned. We would never use this image. And I was like, what? And literally said that. So it's also like, people will say that this is a global campaign. We can't have someone that dark skinned. And so I think you've also seen this movement, racially ambiguous models. Let's pick someone who's racially ambiguous. We have no idea what they look like. That's even better. So basically, we're trying to say we would want to cast someone Caucasian, but let's go the racially ambiguous or again, back to the proximity to whiteness point. And so I've seen it show up in so many ways. And I think the demographics, at least from a U.S. perspective, are changing so quickly You can't continue to ignore a consumer. The multicultural consumer, according to Nielsen recently, is like $3.2 billion of spending power. And so there is this notion from marketers. It's like, I've heard people say, well, why would we feature someone dark-skinned? No one's going to buy the product then. And I'm like, actually, if it works for dark skin tones, you just opened up a whole other. You've been ignoring this consumer. The consumer has been there waiting for it. And that's why if we went on Instagram right now, we'll probably find, I don't know how many entrepreneurs who have started products that service darker skin tones, you know, especially I would say in the cosmetic space. It's so funny that we see it as this pie, like, and then you're just trying to get this narrow slice of a pie. But really, if you open it up, you realize that actually the majority of people in the world are of color of like different shades. But to think that by casting someone darker, nobody's going to buy also taps into that like deep-seated notion we have, I think, linking financial privilege and the ability to buy with people of certain skin tones. And that absolutely ties back into racism. And it's also the standards of beauty and what you consider beauty beautiful and what you consider worthy of being lifted up. Yeah. And it takes me back in the day, wasn't plumpness seen as a sign of privilege and beauty because the woman never had to lift a finger and and labor. And now it's seen on the other side of the spectrum. Well, and I I think about like in my IP experience of dealing with, you know, inventors and people who want to be first to market, right? And you because you can capture this whole sort of untapped market. And so it sort of goes against, you know, theories behind like, wouldn't you want your products to get to the people who really have never been served? And this is your market space. So you would think from a financial perspective, racism and colorism removed, this would be an amazing opportunity to your point earlier. Absolutely. And one of the best cases that has been talked about over and over again is Fenty, Rihanna's launch of her makeup line several years ago. Darker skin tones, foundations, shades, they could not keep them in stock. 
could not. I knew because I was one of the ones trying to buy them. Like it was flying off the shelf, whether that was in Sephora, whether that was online in e-commerce. And so there's a market. There is a market there. It's just a market that's been ignored for all the reasons that we've discussed. The other thing that I found is interesting with what my friend D. Marshall calls the diversity tipping point of 2020. We've seen a lot of diversity washing in the marketplace, which is a lot of companies making empty promises that they're not actually following through on. I've also seen what I'm calling diversity dressing, which is the opposite of what we're talking about, which is I'm on Instagram. I'm seeing like this amazing, a beauty brand who will, I will not name and a really amazing image of a black woman close up with cream on applying something. And then I go to the website and I'm like, you don't even sell any products for someone this dark skin. So it's diversity dressing. So now you've gone to the other end because you feel like that's what you have to do to show to the world, but you actually don't have, and I'm not talking foundation, I'm talking foundation, eyeshadow, blush, lipstick, all of the things that a consumer wants to buy. And so that's what I call diversity dressing. I was just talking about that with my husband, actually, to a couple days ago, because all of the holiday, you know, commercials are out. And he's like, I can see that they really went for the diverse models here. But they're not selling diverse products or products for, you know, a mass market a mass wide audience besides their audience that has always bought this particular product. And so I think that's a great term for it, diversity dressing that I had not heard, but I'm definitely going to use now. <laughs> you can use it. You can use it. Take it. Take it. Yes. <laughs> awesome. You know, when I think about this in marketing and advertising, I also think about how colorism impact so many other parts of our society, right? Like I think about it in medicine, for example, where, you know, we've there have been detrimental health issues to people who are discriminated against because of the color of their skin, as well as worse healthcare treatment. So I don't know, are there other spheres that you really see this in? The medicine one is really interesting. I don't know if you all saw the image that went viral of a black fetus and CNN picked up on it. Phenomenal. A Nigerian medical student and illustrator who's been doing this for a while. But for many individuals, it's like, wow, I've never seen a black fetus in a medical illustration. I've never seen a pregnant black woman in a medical illustration. And so you think about the importance of medical illustrations for medical professionals who are being trained. And if your entire medical career, you're only seeing images of white individuals and black, dark-skinned individuals, black representation in particular is excluded, erased, then how do you show up as somebody who's caring for the health of others? And so that to me is was a really startling one that suddenly people were like, I had never seen that before. And how could I not have ever seen that before or see myself represented? You know, another really interesting one in the medicine space tangentially is Band-Aids. Like it took Band-Aid how long to actually create a Band-Aid that matches? For years, it was like I had a peach color Band-Aid on my brown skin, right? So this whole idea of what nude is, is really interesting too, right? So in that crosses so many industries, like nude is pinkish white beige. You're like, no, that's not nude. That's your nude. That's not my nude. My nude is brown. And so there is a, a brand that I'd been following on Instagram for a while called Nude. And they actually petitioned the Oxford Dictionary to change the definition of nude to matching your skin tone. And they're an apparel company. And this is something, whether it's shoes, whether it's undergarments, it's this whole idea of what is nude. And I thought nude shoes were beige shoes, right? That's not nude. But I like thinking about this. I was like, oh, my God, like 
I had like these really cute, like beige pumps that were like my nude pumps. And I'm like, and that's even as an adult. And I'm like, wait, that's someone else's nude. That's not my nude. So I'm still having revelations about this topic. I love that. I mean, because the same way that, so I had posted that medical drawing on our Instagram, because I also was like, I can't believe I didn't realize that I had never seen a black fetus represented before. And the same response came on our Instagram feed from others. And I think that idea of constantly questioning stuff like nude, or I still, oh, I often tell the story of my daughter when she was really young, asking me for the skin color crayon. And I remember at that point being like, what skin color are you talking about? And, and asking her that question, I feel like the opportunity to think critically about what is being fed to us is there all the time. And then, so I, I would love to ask you, how can listeners who maybe aren't in the medical field, but you know, how can we make do something about this? What are the actions that people can take based on realizing that there is societal pressure placed and expectations and understanding of people, you know, based on their shades of brown, lighter to darker, you know, in their workplace and then maybe in their personal lives? What can people do about this? That's a great question. I think start by educating yourself. I know you all have resources. I have a number of pieces that we could link to the podcast, but educate yourself on what is colorism if you have no idea. And if you have no idea, that's okay because it's not your lived experience, but now's your opportunity to understand what that means. Because once you understand what it means, you can think about how it shows up. So you can be in HR or in recruiting at work and you can see a brochure or something that's being created on the website where it's all lighter skinned individuals. And you're like, huh? What's going on here? Where's the diversity of representation? You can be looking at a brief that continues to say 18 to you know 35-year-old racially ambiguous. You're like, okay, let's have that conversation. Is there racism that's showing up in this brief? Like those are the hard questions we need to be asking for at work. If you're developing products, you know, I'll never forget for years I developed beauty products that didn't work on my skin tone. And finally I was like, this doesn't even work. Like, what am I doing? Like this eyeshadow doesn't show up on my skin. There's not enough pigmentation. So I think we need people to interrupt bias when we see that happening. And then I think in our personal lives, I'll just go to the place of anyone who's listening who has children in their lives. Like inclusion starts at home. And so thinking about if I only give my little brown girl white dolls, what am I teaching her? And similarly, if I only give her brown dolls, and if I'm a white mother with a white child who only gives white dolls, like what are we teaching? And so I think there's so many opportunities from the toys they play with, the books they read, to films they watch. I really want to give a shout out to Passing on Netflix. I don't want to say anything else about it, but if you can watch it on Netflix, wow. This topic of colorism, I mean, it is such a beautiful film and I don't want to give anything away, but that film is right about the topic that we're discussing. I love that. I also had two other thoughts because you mentioned the, as a parent, I also think as a teacher, it's so important for us to realize like, and I know me, Sasha, you've talked about this too, being aware on the playground, like, is my kid being judged based on the color of their skin or not? And the fact that especially black female students with darker skin are like much more likely to be suspended than their lighter skin counterparts. Teachers have the ability to check that. And same thing, I think the assumption is made so much that, you know, black boys are seen as so much older than white boys of the same age, for example. And so to check our biases when we're looking at the kids around us, I think is really important. I think just also paying attention just to the small details and you get to know people. I don't know how many times, and sorry to all my bride friends who are listening, I've been a bridesmaid and they've politely, you know, they very generously said that somebody would do my makeup and I show up and I know it's going to be a disaster. 
because they don't have any of my makeup because they won't for dark skin. I just know. And that's like a horrible feeling. Right. And so you're like, oh, I guess I'm just going to look like this today because it's the bride's day and not my day. Or I bring my foundation and slip it out of my bag and give it to the ma- like those things. Like just be aware, I think, also when you are in, you know, if the group is predominantly white. Right. And there are individuals who I don't identify as white. Like, how might that make them feel? And it's the small things that you don't realize. The other last example I'll leave you all with is I don't know if you've ever played from a work perspective, the baby game. Okay. I love babies. So I'm not a baby hater, but I hate this game. It's called Guess Who the Baby Is. It's a really great team building experience. And everyone sends in their baby photo. And then it's either over Zoom or on the wall. Like, we all guess who the baby is. Like, oh, that's Sarah when she was very so cute. Okay, it's not really fun if you're the only dark-skinned baby because ta-da, it's Mita. Oh my God, that's Mita as a baby. No idea that would be Mita. And there's, you know, I'm on a team at one point of like 15 white leaders and me. And it's like so uncomfortable and upsetting. And I'm not a baby hater. I love babies, but that doesn't work. Could we just change it to be like, let's all share our favorite board game as a child growing up or a favorite story as a child growing up. So I just think that's why we just have to pay attention to these small things and pay attention to who's participating in the things that we're doing and how it might make them feel. I love that you gave those two very specific examples, because I think those are, it just highlights, right? This, what some people do not have to have not had to think about, right? But I think that those are the things, those are the small things that have a big impact though, you know, to this question, right? What can we do differently? And I think about even when we think about kids and color and how also it's not the case that kids in the same family have the same color too, right? Or are the same color. And so I think that when we're thinking about that too, like that's the other layer that I keep coming back to, like my kids happen to oddly have the exact same color skin most of the time, but that is not the case for like my husband's family or so many other families. And so I think that when you're thinking about treatment of kids and stuff, that's something that is also something to think about because that might not be, especially if you're a white family, that might not be your lived experience. So. And I also think this is not the part where I think anybody who doesn't experience it can do anything about it, but to understand the weight, the pressure you were talking about of constantly being told that you might be too dark to get married or you have to watch out and not get suntan. Like that's a lot of self-worth and self-esteem and how I show up in the world navigation that people of lighter skin tones may or may not have, like they may have to deal with that in other realms, but not based just on how their skin shows up or, or how they look. And so I just feel like it's important to, to appreciate that in certain cultures, that is a weight that some people show up having carried and having had to navigate of the, you're not good enough, or you might have to be careful a little bit more just based on society's judgments. Absolutely. And it's something I've dealt with my whole life and it's pretty painful. So I go back to the very beginning when we were talking about examples and that work example where the former boss pulled up my arm and someone else's arm and said, I want to get tan, but not as dark as Mita. You think about intent versus impact. So someone's like, okay, but that intention, that wasn't that bad. And I'm like, but as someone who's experienced colorism, that's devastating. So the intent has to match the impact, right? And that's where oftentimes we misstep. It doesn't matter what the intentions were. The impact was clear. And to your point, if someone's experienced this all their life, it hits them in a different way. It's not a joke. It's not funny. It's been my experience my entire life. 
Absolutely. What else about colorism have we not asked that you think is important for people to understand or think about? I think we've talked about just the market opportunity. You know, I've been in meetings where I say in the past, why don't we have darker shades for this product? Why is the mood board of influencers? Oh, it's just a mood board, Mita. But I'm like, why are they all white? Or why are they all racially ambiguous? And this notion that people think, well, there's no market. We're not going to launch those three shades. There's no market for darker skin tones. And so the market, we see what we see. We believe what we believe. Like the market is small because you're only looking at your own community. You're not thinking about who else could participate. So I think that that's really tied to exclusion at the end of the day. Like, who are you excluding from reaching and who are you excluding serving? No, I think that point is so important too, because it's also the voices who are in the room, right? Because if there's no one in there, right, who's questioning why those shades aren't in there, then we won't have that change. We won't have that perspective. I also think it's, we talked about this earlier, it's not a check the box exercise. It's not like, and I see this happen a lot in the beauty space where I've spent a lot of time. Oh, I had the foundation. We're done. I got the darkest skin foundation. I did my part. Listen, I have not been to a cosmetic counter in a long time because of COVID, but I'm one of those people who get suckered into spending like $600 on stuff that I'll never use because I don't know how to apply makeup. So I believe I'm like, okay, I need this. I need this. I need. I will buy it all. I'll buy the blush. I'll buy the lipstick. I'll buy the lip liner. I'll buy the eye. So all of that, my needs are different than your needs, right? For your skin. And so that is like, I just don't understand. It's missed opportunity. So for anyone who doesn't think inclusion is a driver of the business, I'll prove them wrong. Like you were leaving dollars on the table. The other thing I talk about that's often overlooked is like this idea of hands and like how my entire life, I've pretty much seen white hands holding things. So whether it's like a mug or a pen. And so leaders will say to me, oh, it's just a product shot. I'm like, it's not a product shot. You have white hands. So can we make them dark hands? And so it's those small things, right? Or even now being in the tech space and watching a lot of like animation, animated graphics, why can't we have someone darker skinned as a cartoon or a meme? So I think those things, like just think about that too, like when you're putting together a deck and you're using images from Google, oh, these are just stock images that matters, right? Because it starts to just continue to reinforce stereotypes that we have in our head. So I think that's also something really important to think about. Yeah. I did like a quick scan of stock images and I entered first of all, a long time ago, women. And just to see the type of women that showed up in these stock images, I'm like, oh, obviously we need to revamp it, but there's now dedicated companies that have diverse stock photos. And why not go to support those sorts of organizations, if you have the option to get stock photos from a certain location and you're in charge of that budget, look for those opportunities to diversify your representation. Yeah. And my kids notice when they're being represented in media and they notice when they're not. And so I think that that is such a huge thing because we were watching, well, we've been watching a lot of holiday stuff, but there are a lot of holiday movies that are very white out there, right? And there are a lot of... and. My husband is the one who's trying to watch all of the Black holiday movies out there. So he is the one target demographic. But I think that they can see when they're being represented and when they're not. And so it's such a, even if we, as adults, we are not, you know, making those choices to be inclusive and to have that representation, kids know and they know when they're not there as well. 
you know, speaking of kids in the holidays, my heart has been singing with the rise of Black Santa and Brown Santa. I have never, I mean, I Target takes too much of my money anyways, but kudos to Target. Like, and it was interesting. I shared this on LinkedIn and someone in my community said, before all the white people go crazy, this was this person's terms. Let's remember that Santa is a fictional character, but it is, you know, Old Navy, brown Santa pajamas, like they have, Old Navy has a whole program that they're starting to train Santas, to get more Santas of diversity representation. So how could I be a Santa and show up to take photos with children, to greet children, to, you know, the banter and answer questions. And then I received a holiday card from someone on my team. And it was the first time it was someone dark skinned on a card. And you're like, this is the first time in my life I received a heart of any kind that looks like me. And then I want to give a shout out to Be Rooted. They're at Target and they're an incredible stationary company and they have incredible notebooks they make. And again, I'm like, this is the first time I've seen myself reflected in, on a journal. And so that really matters. And you just think, wow, it took this long to get here. Yeah. And I think for people who are white. I think it's important to remember that the same way, you know, I think in previous conversations, some people will be like, well, that book is meant for black women to read, or that book is not for me. I think, like you said earlier, buying dolls for kids that don't look like them, that have a whole variety, buying a notebook, like people are allowed to get things that look different from them. Cause imagine it from the flip side where everything has been catered to white people for so long and people of color have had to live in that space. Like it's important that we all step into this zone together and embrace these products because the more we spend money on them, the more people are going to make them. Absolutely. And so I think cards and notebooks and every other way that you can support businesses that are showcasing authentic diversity is really important. Absolutely. And for my six-year-old daughter to see this and be like, mama, that's so beautiful and start writing in it. I'm like, it's my notebook, hands off, but I'm like, I'll get you one. But no, but it's like that excitement, that joy that she sees herself reflected. I knew that's what it was because I have a lot of other notebooks on my desk, but for some reason, why did she gravitate toward that one? She sees herself reflected on the cover. That's pretty amazing. I love it. There is a Black Santa snow globe that is at Target that I am tracking down for the boys. Yeah. because You're tracking down? There's like a hand towel. There's a soap dispenser. There's ornaments. I mean, it's a little, I haven't bought any of it, but my husband's like, no, no, no. But I'm like, oh my God, this is like amazing. It's like your heart sings. And you know, also uh, Disney resorts for the first time had a Black Santa and you should have, people on Twitter went wild. They were like crying. They're like, I can't believe and Disney did it very quietly. They didn't do a press release, didn't announce it. They just had Black Santas at the resort. And it was just a big moment for people who had never seen Santa represented like that. I love all of this. Okay, Snow Globe. I don't want to add that to my list. Okay, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to go look at the Target app. Target, stop taking my money. If people want to find and follow more of your work, where can they find you? They can find me on LinkedIn. And I'm really excited that I started my own podcast with my friend, Dee Marshall. Thank you. I've joined you all in the podcasting space. It's called Brown Table Talk. You can find it on Apple and Spotify. And Dee and I started it because we really wanted to help more women of color win at work. And it's not just for women of color, but it's also for allies on how you can show up and help women of color win. So 
please, please listen to it. And if you like it, please leave us a review. You've been listening to the Dear White Women podcast and are the reason we are among the top one and a half percent of podcasts in the world. You rock. Did you love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to leave a rating and review. And it may seem like a pain, but it really helps. And make sure you're following us so you keep getting the newest episodes each Tuesday. Don't forget for all your non-podcast listener friends to tell them about our new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, which you can buy anywhere you buy books, including Amazon, where we would love your reviews. We're on Instagram and Twitter and are upping the game on our emails. And if you love us, send us an email at hello at dearwhitewomen.com to bring us into your company for a webinar or a workshop.